This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book. The subject being the epistle to the Colossians and this is number 11 of that series. Most of us who are considering this epistle and have done so together are aware that Paul, the apostle to us Gentiles, wrote four epistles which are marked with prison. The prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles as a special word for the present period. And they, these four epistles group themselves as two pairs. Ephesians and Colossians stress the peculiar character of the present dispensation. The church is spoken of as the body of Christ and believers are said to be members of that body. And their relationship with Christ is that they are supposed in the eye of God to be seated with him far above all principality and power in heavenly places. Now those terms are used both in Ephesians and in Colossians. But there are two other epistles of the same period. Philippians and the one we read a little bit just now, Second Timothy. Those epistles also are marked with prison. They belong to the same period, but whereas Ephesians speaks about the hope of our calling, Philippians speaks about a prize of the high calling. Now it's very obvious that there's a difference between a gift and something that you earn. The hope is a gift. We have nothing in ourselves that could merit salvation. And if God has attached, attached to our salvation a blessed hope, we take, we take it with both hands, with thanksgiving. But when he says, now, won't you run the race that is set before you? Won't you stretch out for the added prize of the high calling? That's a different argument altogether. And consequently, there are features in Philippians which we don't find in Ephesians. And when we get to Second Timothy, we found the Apostle Paul himself using the words that mean a race. When he said, I have finished my course. Well, that word course means a race course. And it's in our very language today. Uh, the only way I can see it used in this town, this city, is to give the word to a cinema. They call it a hippodrome. But I suppose you know the word hippo means a horse and dromos means a course. So the hippodrome was the race course. And Paul says, I finished my course. And then he says, I'll tell you what that means. I kept the faith. And I'll tell you what that leads to. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown. Because in the Greek sports, those who entered in for the races all ran. But one received the prize. He said, they do it for a corruptible crown, but you for an incorruptible, so run that you may obtain. Well, that's where we've reached in our study of the epistle to the Colossians. And we find that although Ephesians and Colossians march together, Colossians, as so this all contracted some of the teaching to a smaller space and gives in chapter 2 a tremendous amount of space to the perils the difficulties, the problems that beset the child of God. Well now, we're not here to criticise God. 
We're not here saying, well, you ought not to occupy so much space telling us of all these dangers. He knows better than we do what we need. We are here to bow in his presence and say, well, if that's the case, Lord, we want to understand it. And I suggest to you uh, that we do, we shall need all the grace that God gives us, and I shall do, to make these difficult passages understandable. So, prepare for difficulty. Now, first of all, we look at Colossians 1, to just notice one or two essential features before we come into chapter 2. Now, one statement we must remember to give prominence to is found in Colossians 1 verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. We haven't made ourselves meet. It's the Father that has made us meet. So it's no good saying we are putting ourselves on a pedestal or we are better than other people. No. That's not the case. It's God himself who has undertaken our desperate case and provided full for all the journey and the acceptance at the end. It goes on to say that we have been delivered from the power of darkness. We're a delivered people although we're still in the realm where darkness is often very, very dense, spiritual darkness, and hath translated us. So that although we are living here, actually living here, and we must remember that, we are spoken of in this epistle as though we died. And our life is hid with Christ in God. And we're no longer to be reckoned to be living in this world, subject to its ordinances and its commands and what we're to do and what we're not to do, we belong to a new creation. Although, of course, we're still suffering our aches and pains and all the limitations of the present life. But we know that we have a relationship with the risen Christ, which has made all the difference in the world between life and death. Well now, further down this chapter, Colossians, it says, verse 21, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies. Now, there are two words used of us. Alienated and enemies. In what way? By wicked works. And, of course, some people will say, well, I've never done, never done any wicked works. Well, it depends upon your standard, doesn't it? If you're comparing yourself with the next-door neighbour, perhaps you're a better person than he is. But if you're comparing yourself with God's standard, oh, there's not one of us can ever boast in his presence. You remember the parable of the two men? One man went into the presence of God and said, God, I thank thee. I am not as other men are. I give tithes of all I possess. I fast twice in the week. I'm not like this publican. And the other man didn't lift up his eyes to heaven. He simply said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the Saviour said, that's the man that went down to his house justified rather than the other. So, all that we've said up to this moment is, sheer gift, pure grace, undeserved. Now, after all that, the Apostle in this same chapter says in verse 28, whom we preach, warning every man. Warning. Now, the word warning means some correction, some danger. Lurking, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. 
Well, just a little earlier, if you glimpse back to verse 22, he says of Christ in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. He's told these people that through the death of Christ, they will already be presented holy and unblameable. And now in the same chapter, he says, I want to present you perfect. Well, we've had all this before, I know, but we want to be sure that everyone sees it. That the word perfect does not mean getting better and better. There was no idea of, of improving on the work of Christ. The word perfect has already entered into 2 Timothy, which we read just now, when the Apostle Paul said, I have finished my course. That word finished supplies us with the word perfect. And the word perfect means to go right on to the end. It's a figure to do with a race. You not merely start, but you persist. And you go on and touch the tape. Now he says, I want you to do that. So now, you see, we're not dealing with our position in Christ or our salvation. We're dealing with that aspect of it, which God says, I've given you a wonderful gift, haven't I? You say, yes, Lord. And he says, what are you doing with it? Well, that's the question. So we're going to have that turned over now before us. <clears throat> Many ways in the chapter that is now opening us in chapter 2. <clears throat> we pick up our new study with um, verse 4. Having gone all through this that we've touched upon lightly, he says now, and this I say. So it's very nice when a person like the Apostle Paul is writing to us, he tells us why he's writing to us. I, I don't know whether you've ever received letters and you look at it and say, I wonder what they put that in for. Well, they don't tell you, you see. They, they expect you to know. But he says, this I say, I've told you this, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Here's the beginning of the danger. Beguile you. Enticing words. Will you look down to verse 18? Let no man beguile you of your reward. He's on it again. If you look at verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Well, it's most obvious then that there's dangers. And these dangers are not merely physical. You're not in not in fear of somebody setting about you. Not merely physical, it's deeper. It's enticing words. It's satanic wisdom. It's darkness invading light. He wants to protect you. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore Receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. That's a sort of a little bracket, a parenthesis, before he plunges right into the subject. Now, before we plunge into it, let's get what advantage we may of this outline which is in front of you on this chart. Uh, that's complicated in all conscience, but it has tried to lift out the essential steps that we've now got to follow as we go through this difficult chapter. You see, first of all, I've given you that triangle, which is a sort of um, symbol that we recognise, meaning there's danger. Danger. 
uh, on the road. And then we have a smaller symbol. If you look closely at it, you'd find it was a wreath of leaves. And that is the crown or the prize. Because when it says in verse 18, let no man beguile you of your reward, it's using a word that is the very self-same word, prize of the high calling of Philippians. So there's no idea that a Christian can ever lose his life, can never have his salvation taken from him, can never be cheated of his place in Christ. But he says, even so, you may be stopped in your service, you may not run the race as you should. You may be enticed this way or that way. You see. So this is to safeguard us in the working out of this great salvation. So we've got those two symbols. And then if you notice, I don't know whether you can see it from where you are, but there's a, a set of statements and then a corrective. One, two, three, four, five times. Now what sort of correctives does the apostle give? He says there's this plausible speech, this philosophy, the traditions of men, the rudiments of the world, when he says, what do you put in its place? Well, he says, I put Christ. My, that's an old story with us, isn't it? That's the answer. Not getting hold of the man and arguing the point with him and buttonholing him. He says, look, there's a simple answer. It's not after Christ. Not after Christ. And if it isn't after Christ, don't worry about it. Don't bother about it. It's only going to sidetrack you. And then, after he's done with another feature, he says, Christ is the head of all principality and power. You are complete in him. Why turn aside to these things? And again, further down, corrective. He says, some people will be badgering you. Why don't you observe this day and that day and observe this ceremonial and that ceremonial. I'll read the words, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days. Why? Because there are shadows of things to come. The body is of Christ. Who wants to bother about shadows when we've got a reality? And so we get right down to the, to the closing. All this Vain speculation and religion piled on itself, ceremonies by the multitude. Oh, he said, the one great thing is to hold Christ as the head. Recognize that he is the one who tells you where to go and what to do and leave all the rest. And then ultimately, at the very bottom he says, and look at it. All this flogging of yourself and abstaining from this and doing this, it's not in any honour, say, to the satisfying of the poor old flesh. Now, friends, don't misunderstand. We have no religion in this chapel. Oh, you say, here's a funny chapel, no religion. No, friends, we've got something 10,000 times better. We've got the living, ascended Christ. Religion put Christ on the cross. It was the religious Jews that sold the Saviour, as well as the Romans who didn't believe at all. Religion can be a persecuting thing. Religion is simply the flesh being worked up by the God of this age to take the place of the Christianity which Christ came to give. So we have no ceremonies in this chapel, no ordinances, no special days, because Christ is all and in all and perfectly sufficient for every day of the week, whether it's Sunday or Monday. Well, now we must come back on our story and get a little idea of how he's introduced this.
we, we are conscious we're up against some problems and uh, he's going to give us a word of warning. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Beguile you and enticing words. We've just touched upon the two words translated beguiled in this, uh, but um, the other word, enticing, shows you that there's an attempt on the part of the evil one, or not an attempt, a continuation of what he did in the very beginning. Taking this book as a whole, we read in the very earliest chapters of the book of Genesis that into a garden where God had placed man and wife, there came someone with enticing words and they fell for it. And into this world came sin and death. And the evil one apparently triumphed. But it cost the Son of God his life's blood to rid us from that. So we want to watch. When anyone approaches us and speaks to us, let's put their words to the supreme test. And that is not the creed that we have or a prayer book that we use. It's the word of God that he's given us. Let's keep in harmony with that. And if it keeps in harmony with that, well. And then one of the tests, the, the acid test, as to whether the word of God is being rightly treated, is what place does Christ occupy in it? If he occupies a secondary place, you know you're wrong. But if he occupies a supreme place, you're on the safe side. Well, now he says, For though I be absent, now he stops a bit, I think the Apostle was a very kindly man. Although he wanted to speak the truth, as he told us, we must speak the truth in love. And there is such a thing as discouraging a person by overdoing the warning at first. You remember how he wrote to the parents in bringing up their children. He says at the end of chapter 3, verse 20, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. So he's giving the fathers a little word to go on with. You see, he, this man doesn't merely say, children, obey your parents. And that's the end of it. He said, that's only half of it. He says, children, obey your parents. And fathers, see to it that you don't discourage those children. Oh, we could easily do that, friends. If you've got children, you're walking on a sort of a tightrope. And you can have a pitfall on either side. You can be so free and easy that your child will grow up a terrible nuisance to everybody. And you can be so hard that they'll be frightened and timid out of their lives. You need the grace of God. You need the grace of God. And here one of the things is, lest they be discouraged. You want to have a sympathetic interest with a child. Have you ever seen anything like this? A little child has been patiently putting together bricks or a doll's house or some finding at the other and then mother or whoever it might be father looks at the clock and says here it's time to have tea and away goes the light oh my it's like an earthquake to that child you've never thought that you've destroyed perhaps a work of love of course you haven't got to be kowtowing and wait half an hour while they build it but you just say don't do it in a way that you discourage well the apostle has taken that line Wherever you read his epistles, you'll find in the first chapter that if he can find anything to say that is commendable, he'll say it. He was going to give the Corinthians a terrific dressing down. He called them very, very hard names. 
But in the first chapter he thanked God for certain things. He does it again in Romans. He thanked God. He did it again in Ephesians. He said, when I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So you see, friends, we've got to be all the time keyed up to the fact that truth is the thing that matters. We've got to also remember that we're very frail creatures. The speaker is a frail person and so are the listeners. And we do well to remember that too. So he says, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He was looking at some of the things that he could commend. And he spoke about their order. Now again, that doesn't mean just sheer mechanical discipline. But it does mean that wherever you get a gathering of God's people who have made a profession not only of faith in Christ for their salvation, uh, but also believe that the church is the body of Christ, that Christ is the head, and they are fellow members, you'll expect to find some order. Because, you know, if we have disorder in our ordinary human bodies, that's only another way of saying we're out of health. When he speaks about this body, as you remember, in the second chapter further on, he picks it up again. He says in verse 19 these words, And not holding the head, from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered, so the head is important, but so are the joints and the bands, so that the nourishment can flow through to the extreme ends of the body, and knit together, knit together, a unity, increases with the increase of God. So he says, when I beheld your order, this is the word that we get uh, in connection with even the resurrection, and everyone in his own order. And there are some who have misunderstood uh, the term when it speaks in Ephesians about the um, wives. It says in Ephesians 5, verse 22, wives, Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And then there's a real old bother because uh, they say, well, why should a wife submit to a husband? Well, they've got the wrong idea. It doesn't mean to say she's got to grovel and she's got to say you're a better one than I am. No, no. Because if you look at the verse before, it says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And it says, wives submit. But what about the husband? Well, he's got to submit. If God says to the husband, I make you responsible, he's got to submit to that responsibility. And he says to the wife, I make you responsible for that, she's got to. They're not submitting in the sense of groveling. They're both looking to the Lord and saying, well, that's my position. I won't quarrel with it. And you see, there's no word obey in the marriage service, not as given by Paul. They don't put it in the prayer book and they have an act of parliament to try to get it out again. But he didn't say to wives, obey. He said, children, obey. Oh, yes. Servants, obey. Oh, yes. But you two stand together there as a picture of Christ and his church. And each one has his place. And that's a tremendous responsibility as well as a privilege. So we come back again every... He says, I, I rejoice to see your order. Uh, but, of course, 
He wasn't speaking about a mere market as a mere martinet. He didn't want to say, oh, I see you always go to church on a certain time and you always do this. Oh, no, he says, there's that order you are seeking to manifest that you are members of the body of Christ. And then again, he says further, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now, here's a word that is used in more senses than one. It is the word stereoma that gives us the word steadfast. And you know the word stereo means something hard and fast and firm and unmovable and it can have a sort of a secondary meaning, uh, a mind that will never open and never read or consider anything. They speak about a stereotyped mind. Well, that's only because it's so many good things in this life have become distorted by man. You think of the words that belong to, say, the art world, for instance. Well, the very word art has become artful. And the very word craft has become crafty. And the very word design has become designing. And the very, very word cunning, which means a hand and a brain that can do these things, has got a secondary and bad meaning. All words go down. Hardly any words go up. Isn't that a witness to what we are in ourselves? So the word stereoma, which means something steadfast, becomes obstinacy. Of course, you do know the tag, don't you? What is it? You are obstinate. He is pig-headed. I am resolute. See, it's all the same thing. Depends on the point of view. Well, now we've got to the next thing. Verse 6. And this contains practically the key to the whole matter. As ye have reached, therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. See, you have received Christ as Lord, haven't you? Well, is that a mere title that means nothing? No, he says. You call me Master and Lord, and so I am. You will discover that Paul doesn't use that word indiscriminately. I think he only uses it once in the first three chapters of Ephesians, but he uses it numbers of times in the second three, because in the second three is dealing with practice and walk. In chapter three of Ephesians, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, do something. In chapter four, the same epistle, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, because he's now going to exhort to walk worthy of the calling. So he says to you, you have received Christ as Lord, haven't you? Well, now walk in him. That is to say, walk in line with that. Realize that he is your Lord and that he is the head and so let that influence your attitude to life. As ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now there's a need to watch the grammar of the next verse. Uh, we, we can't speak without grammar even though we don't know it. A little child speaks in some measure grammatically because they've lived in a home that speaks. But nevertheless, when we are dealing with the scriptures particularly, we want to be careful to give it its true shade of meaning. Now our version says, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. The word is, strictly speaking, having been rooted, that's the past, and being built up, in the faith, that's the present. 
Just that shade of difference. And you want to remember that the Apostle has written these words by inspiration of God, and so it's not merely hair-splitting. You have been, you have been rooted. Says so. You are being built. Says so. That's his point. He says, what God has done for you in Christ, you now take hold of and put it into practice. You are complete in him. Well, now see to it that so far as it's humanly possible, you act in harmony with that. If you say, I'm complete in Christ, and then you turn aside to this or that or the other, you're denying it. If you say, Christ is my Lord, and then you walk contrary to his will, you're denying it. So, he says, what I'm saying to you is not to try to save yourself, but inasmuch as you are saved, won't you act as though it is true? So, we put the words down. Having been rooted and being built up in him and established in the faith. So, here we have, in the earlier verse, he said, I was beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Back again he is in the next verse and established in the faith. That is most important and you remember that in the epistle to the Ephesians on the Sunday mornings we've been looking at the unity of the Spirit and in that unity of the Spirit there is one faith. And that is picked out and enlarged later on when he says till we all come unto the unity of the faith. The faith. Now, the word faith can be very much misunderstood. There is no passage in Scripture where a person has faith. Who would you say I thought they had faith all over the book? No. They always have faith in somebody or something. You see, if you say to a person, oh, have faith, would you say, faith in what? I can't have faith. That's only a lucky charm. That's only a superstition. The Bible tells me to have faith in God, to have faith in his word, to have faith in the finished work of Christ. Oh, there's something tangible. But not merely to say, I have faith. Because that's merely fatalism. You must have faith in something, faith in someone. So it says here, established in the faith. And then it goes a stage further. Is faith a mere undefined something? Is it something you just feel? Well, if we all express what we feel and call that the unity of faith, we should have a strange mixture of things, wouldn't we? But this is what he says. Established in the faith as ye have been taught. As ye have been taught. Now, to teach is the word that underlies our English word doctrine. Uh, you, you know that we call a person who has passed a certain standard of test, he gets his degree and he becomes a doctor of philosophy, a doctor of social science. Uh, the one that we think of most is the doctor of medicine, uh, because we have more to do with medicine and health than we have to do with philosophy and so on. But why is that man called a doctor? Why? Because he knows his subject so well, or supposed to, that he can teach others. Every doctor is supposed to be able to handle his subject enough to teach somebody. 
And of course you've heard the, the old story, haven't you? Of the maid who opened the door in Scotland. And a very dignified gentleman stood at the door and wanted, he said, um, just tell your mistress uh, that the doctor is called. And she says, are you the doctor that preaches or are you the doctor that practices? You see, that's a difficult thing, isn't it, to say, do you preach or do you practice? The true doctor does both things. He preaches and he practices. So we have, as you have been taught, and then the final word, abounding with thanksgiving. Abounding with thanksgiving. The Apostle Paul was a thankful man. All through his epistles, he slips the word giving thanks. In all sorts of circumstances, he could give thanks. And here he is again. And you remember, in Philippians, he said this, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are a good report, now I'm going to change the authorised a little bit, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, reckon these things, not think on these things. Reckon them. That is to say, you're going to deal with somebody else as erring and as weak and as faltering as yourself. Now, you'll have to look very carefully to see all these wonderful things. You'll have to look very, very carefully to see the honesty and the purity and the loveliness in some people. But if you use the magnifying glass of the love of God, if, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, reckon these things, and the peace of God, and the God of peace, shall be with you. So we're not going to flatter people, but we are going to say, if God were swift to mark iniquity, who among us would stand? And so we've got the combined, uncompromising, indeflected sort of testimony to the truth, the apostle would not turn to the right hand or the left with it, and yet he was as pliable as, what shall we call it, a piece of highly tempered steel. You can bend him also almost into a knot, but he go back straight again the moment you let it go. We need to have both. We need to have a tender approach to the other person, and we need to be absolutely resolute with regard to what we believe. And if that doesn't need grace, what does? It's so easy to do all to the glory of God and ride slipshod over everybody. It's so easy to give none offence and say nothing about it at all. But the Apostle puts the two together. He says, do all to the glory of God, give none offence. Either Jew, Gentile or Church of God. All of that leads to the grace of God. And that's the only ministry that counts. Well, all that I've done is to deal with this little preparation. When we meet together, God willing, next time, we shall have to start with um, verse 8, which plunges right into the problem and uh, will exercise all the grace that God will give us. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. I pray that we may get benefit from this, and as a consequence of having the difficulties marked out for us, the pitfalls along the way 
the provision that God has made for our erring steps, that we may be able to say also, in the language of the Apostle Paul, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which as he said, the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to Paul in that day, and not to him only, but also to you and to me, if we in our turn have loved, here's the word, his appearing.